Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Lauten Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 144. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Well, thank you, Chuck. And uh, hey, everybody, welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 144 you're currently listening to. My guest today is Jack Shirley, record producer, audio engineer, and musician. And uh, he is the owner of the Atomic Garden Recording Studio, which is located in Palo Alto, California. Currently located, I say, because he's in the process of building out a new version of the Atomic Garden, which will be located in East Oakland, California. We pay a visit to Jack at the new place. If you're watching on YouTube, we take a little tour of the building in process. It's uh, it's pretty involved. It's pretty crazy. He's about a year into building. He's serious. He's dead serious. I mean, he's got lots of people involved in this, and it's going to be really great. I, I really look forward to uh, seeing it and uh, at some point bringing some bands there to work because it looks like it's going to be pretty outstanding. Uh, but there's a lot involved. So we talk about that. So stay tuned and uh, listen to my interview with Jack Shirley here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Today's Wednesday, September 13th, as I record this, and I leave on Sunday the 17th. And as we have discussed in my video diaries, if you haven't seen my video diaries, check them out. They're on the Facebook page and the, the Working Class Audio YouTube page. Doing all the prep, getting ready for Mix with the Masters with Chad Blake. Uh, I hope you don't grow tired of me talking about it, but I'm going to just keep talking about it because it's what I'm doing right now. So you're stuck or you can just fast forward whatever you want to do. Anyhow, um, I really got to thank a lot of you out there who of my listeners who have been very, very forthcoming and very helpful. Just volunteering information, Derek Blackburn, thank you, and Daniel Holter. Of course, um, I've spoken with Pete Droge. Uh, who has advised me on a few things. And of course, uh, Will Stocks, thank you. I appreciate it. Offering up as much information as one could hope for to uh, make it a successful event. I, I'm looking forward to it. I'm actually, I'm getting super like, uh, I don't know, OCD about it. Um, I've made a, uh, what do you call it? An Evernote document, documenting everything I'm going to do in terms of packing Really trying not to check bags this time. Really trying to just, well, this time, this time in my travels. Going to take a backpack and a carry-on, and that's it. You know, just going to keep it kind of, you know, I don't know if you all are familiar with how Henry Rollins tends to travel, which is like, you know, a t-shirt and some shorts. I'm not going quite Henry Rollins style on this, but I am going to just get it down to, you know, maybe five or six days worth of clothes, and then I'll do some laundry. Not going to bring... A bunch of stuff in the clothes department, but I am bringing, uh, of course, you know, laptop and hard drive and everything I need to do to do the podcast. I have made a decision to leave my BP40 at home, so I'll be using my other uh, AT handhelds, which I carry with me. The BP40 is great; I love it, but it weighs a lot. And uh, that and the Apollo Twin and all the various things I'm going to bring with me, that starts to add up to a lot. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off on that. What else can I tell you? God, you know, I'm recording in Pro Tools today. And I did actually, I edited uh, the last show with uh, 
Rocky Gallo, episode 143 in Pro Tools, I had been having a devil of a time with a particular thing in, in Studio One. And I'll throw it out there. Maybe some of you have encountered it, but you're editing along and then all of a sudden you want to undo something and you can't. And you go into the undo history list and you can, if you click with a mouse, you can undo your, your previous steps. But in between your steps are these things that say edit multiple parameters. And it, it, it's gotten really weird. I, I'm not really clear what's going on. Maybe it's a result of a bunch of save as, you know, attempts or not attempts, but save as actions where, you know, I'll be working on, you know, WCA number 143 with Rocky Gallo. And now I'm working on WCA number 144 with Jack Shirley. So I've been doing save as and getting rid of the audio files that are not associated with that session. I don't know what's going on. I've Googled it and I cannot for the life of me find this problem. So if you, my fellow Studio One users, if you know what is the solution. I would love to hear it. So send me an email to matt at workingclassaudio.com. In the meantime, I'm back in Pro Tools. You know, not so bad, really. You know, I did a bunch of whining about how, you know, Studio One is, you know, just so much better. It is really good. It's an outstanding DAW, no doubt about it. Those folks at Personas have done a great job. But, you know, I'm back in Pro Tools and maybe it's just old familiar ground. I know what to do. I know how to get from A to B and yeah. So anyways, there it is. Back in Pro Tools for uh, for this episode and for the last episode. I uh, want to remind you the Universal Audio Apollo Rack Dream Studio ends on September 30th. So you can head over to uaudio.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and check that out. And while you're online, make sure and check out the uh, Audio Life subforum on gearsluts.com and uh, have a look around. What else can I share with you? Let's see, uh, YouTube. Yeah, so the YouTube episodes of the show are coming out a little slower. Takes a little more time to edit video than it does to edit audio. I can burn through an audio version of the podcast super quick. You know, after 144 episodes, I'm, I'm pretty good at it. Uh, video, I'm not so good at that. So uh, doing my best to uh, keep it speedy and get them out there. With regards to the, the video diaries, Appreciate you digging in and checking those out and following along. And I've been doing these at home. I've only done two so far, but those are done at home. My buddy Chris Salim from uh, from uh, episode 142. Yeah, I think that's right. My buddy Chris Salim is really good at doing the uh, on-location videos with kind of a selfie stick kind of a thing. Makes it look really good, too. I don't know how I'm going to do that. I'm a little self-conscious about pulling out a GoPro and recording myself in public. I'm not really kind of up for that. So <laughs> it may just end up being me capturing scenes of the travel and narrating uh the diaries as we go. I'm not, I'm not really sure. We'll have to see how that goes, but follow along, keep a close watch on Facebook. That's kind of really going to be the central hub, I guess, of these video diaries. Or if you're a YouTube person, you can go over to YouTube and, and check it out. And of course the, uh, the episodes will be out and taking place, you know, on the usual schedule. So this episode 144, uh, you'll be hearing it probably a little sooner than Sunday when I Sunday or Mondays is when I usually release them. So we'll just have to see how that plays out. Uh, I may just schedule it and make it all automated. Not really sure yet. But anyways, by the time I usually release this, I'll be on a plane. So I have to make other arrangements. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. But I tell you what, you got to check this interview out with Jack Shirley. Super cool. Really, really, really 
focused guy, just knows what he wants to do, knows how to get it done. And if he doesn't, he figures it out quick. And I'm really impressed by him as as an individual. He's kind of an inspiration in terms of uh, seeing somebody just achieve their goals. And uh, so very exciting. So let's check it out. Let's talk to uh, Jack Shirley here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Okay. Welcome to the podcast, Jack, and thanks for having me over. And we're in East Oakland at what is going to be the new Atomic Garden Studios. The original Atomic Garden Studios are in East Palo Alto. And you're currently in the state of building here in East Oakland and continuing to work like crazy in East Palo Alto. You started East Palo Alto about 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. So how did that start and how has it been going in these last 12 years? Well, about 14 years ago, this month actually, uh, I got my first Pro Tools set up and started dabbling at home and quickly, I don't know, kind of fell in love with it and started inviting friends over mm-hmm. to take part. And within about a year and a half of that, I was living off of it because at the time in the peninsula, there were a ton of kids doing music and nobody was really doing lower budget recordings, like easy access recordings. Mm. And so I was a part of that music community. For a lot of people, it was kind of just a no brainer of like, oh, we're, it's, we're, we have a band, we're going to go record with Jack because it was like close and cheap and easy and whatever. So I was paying my rent at my parents' house from recording about a year and a half after I got a Pro Tools rig. Wow. Yeah. What kind of rates were you charging? Uh, I think it might have been. I, I remember at the very beginning, it was you know, bring me a spool of CDs and I'll do your your because uh, that was the way I had to check all my mixes because I was I was like I, I mean we started from zero so it was like a Dell computer and an M box and a home stereo system for monitoring you know what I mean it was very like bottom of the of the barrel and so but I had a really nice stereo in my truck that I trusted <laughs> that had a subwoofer and had like a nice component system and all that stuff. So, and it was before iPods and all that stuff. So if you want to check a mix, you got to burn a CD really quick and go out to the car and you'd listen to it for 15 seconds and then throw the CD on the floor and go, go back and keep working because I didn't know anything. About, I didn't go to school for this. You know, I'm, I like, I, I'm a guitar player. And so like, I know how to tweak tone. And that was like, it was one of those things where it was a combination of being kind of fed up with my experience my limited experience with engineers and their like heavy handedness in my musical creation and one and kind of wanting to be like, wait a minute, like I, I could probably do this myself. I need to like get this person out of the equation, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's kind of what it was. Like, I know how I want it to sound. I don't know how to make it sound like that yet, but like, I bet you I can trial and error my way, you know, through this. And I did. And actually a good friend of mine, Lev, Perry was my like Pro Tools guru at the time. He was like my 24-hour tech support because at the at the time he was working at a music shop selling Pro Tools systems and he was pretty deep into it himself, you know, learning the software and stuff. So whenever I had a problem, I just called Lev. And for for the audience, <laughs> Lev eventually went on to work at Digidesign, later Avid, and is now currently at Universal Audio. Right. Yeah. And so between articles and this is before all the videos started happening, uh, but like between articles and trial and error and some books and, and bouncing off of friends or whatever, like, uh, yeah, with it, like, you know, I went from the inbox to a 002 rack to expand that to whatever and like all in my parents' house and then an HD system, a Control 24 and whatever, like it kind of like ballooned and ballooned. Yeah. And then when I finished school, 
it was like, I, I got to get out of this in-law unit and let's do some, do like a DIY recording studio. So I found a, a spot with a friend of mine. He did a screen printing shop out of the front. I did the studio out of the back. We both lived there. And so... And you, you were renting... We're renting, yeah, renting this unit. Okay. It was like a, like a 2,500 square foot unit okay. in a commercial building that we kind of divvied up. I built this super DIY recording studio. I think there were two professionals set foot in the, like during the building. One was the guy that wired the elect- electrical off the panel, which was just that. It was like a you know, some outlets in the floor. And then one guy helped, the glass guy helped install the windows. Uh, other than that, just a bunch of punk kids who didn't know anything about building anything. And we made a recording studio, <laughs> wow. uh, like an 800 square foot freestanding structure inside of a, inside of a warehouse building. And like, that's what I'm still working out of today. You have nice curtains. I was looking at the pictures <laughs> and I thought, so, I have to talk to Jack about curtains. So when you don't know anything about acoustical treatment or design, really, I mean, a little bit about design. I went to school for illustration. So like, you know, somewhat of a, an there's eye a, for There's that a stuff. little bit of a creative a little streak bit. of that. And so, of course, I kind of quit that to do this stuff full time. But yeah, so like that was the cheapest fabric we could find by the yard. And so like we bought, uh, you know, spools of that stuff and then just hung it from the, from the walls. Um, so there's like also you, when you do that on your walls, you don't have to do uh, mud and tape on the drywall. You don't have to paint anything. It's all just curtains everywhere. <laughs> wow. Uh, you it doesn't hem- sound good. Did you hem them yourself? My mom did actually. Oh. And I got a bunch of PVC pipe and hooked it all to the perimeter and then just like looped the PVC through these little, uh, like the hems, the hemming or whatever. Right. And, uh, and yeah. And then a couple of years later, it was like, man, this live room sounds terrible. <laughs> what can we do? And then took all the stuff down and like got into more acoustical treatment and kind of learned a little bit more. You know, it's, it's been a, a lot of trial and error. Yeah. And it shows. I mean, like if you listen, <laughs> if you listen to the stuff that's 12 years old and, and, and more, you know, it's very obvious. <laughs> but a lot of lessons learned from, from that experience of not only being in your parents' place yeah. and the economic lessons you learned there. Sure as well as the engineering lessons, but also carrying that forward into uh, the current incarnation in East Palo Alto of Atomic Garden yeah. and the things you learned there. What are some of the things that you've learned along the way about money mm-hmm. and about recording? From the financial end of it, the name of the game or whatever you want to call it, or the, the MO from the very start was like, I don't know if this is a feasible career. You know, I don't know if this is going to even work or like last long enough to be something. Mm -hmm. So the idea was just like, keep the overhead laughably low so that this literally cannot fail. So that was the plan. When we went into East Palo Alto, the build was like 10 grand, I think, for the entire build out. The rent was, my personal rent for living and work was $800 a month and that's it. So it was the kind of thing where like, like literally if no one showed up to this recording studio, I could work a part-time job someplace else. I actually got a credential to be a substitute teacher, right? So I have a BA, you pass a, another test and you can be a substitute teacher. So I got that as like a fallback because you can work whatever hours you want and you, know, you can choose days you want to work or whatever. So that was my plan B. If this, if this goes horribly wrong, I can supplement it by being a sub at like a middle school or something. But I never once did that. It wasn't like we got this space and like it would just exploded with with work. It was like a very the first maybe five years were a really steady build. Where I remember the first the first year I made almost like you know half below poverty line or something like that. But I didn't even know it actually until I did my taxes because we were having such a good time, you know, like making records and like <laughs> who cares? There's no money, but like I can pay the rent and we're eating and everything's fine. So like what's kind of come out of that 
crazy low overhead is that when you do start doing well, you have money to buy gear or whatever, you know, well, not even whatever. It's been mostly buying gear uh, since then. And especially when, when I moved into the uh, East Palo Alto spot, it was a really just a, a digital system. It was a control 24 that had the built-in mic, the Focusrite mic freeze right. and an HD system. And that's pretty much was my whole setup. Everything was done in the box. And that's just, that's, that was how I worked. And then, uh, and then I, I started getting into analog stuff. That's been its own monster since then. At this point, I'm actually trying to phase the computer out. And so like the studio can be a fully, like a 100% analog studio, which I'm starting to do more often. Not, uh, not often enough, but it's not for everybody. So I'm, you know, it's like, I have to kind of pick my battles with that. Interesting. You have bought a lot of gear. In fact, I mean, we met originally cause you bought, I think as I was downsizing, yeah. My situation, you bought some converters from me. Oh, yeah, right. Link's, uh, I think... Auroras. Yeah, one of my Auroras. Yeah. Or one of them or both of them? Or? It might have been... It might have been both, actually. I yeah, can't I mean, remember. I had 192s and I, and I was... Uh, or I had a 192 and I think I was upgrading to something higher quality mm-hmm. and uh, more IO. And I've replaced those since then as well. It's They've a, moved on. It's a slippery slope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you, you bought a lot of gear over... The course of time, I mean, I've occasionally popped in and looked at pictures of this of the studio. Sure. Looks, you know, I don't I don't know how it from your perception mm. how it is, but for me, it looks beautiful and it and it's got you know just you know drool worthy gear. Oh, thank you. All over the place <laughs> uh, that any engineer, any recording professional would look at that and go, "Ooh, that guy might probably know what he's doing." That's awesome. <laughs> so. What made you want to move and build a new place? When I first did the the setup in East Palo Alto, you could like literally dance around the rooms, like around the gear setup. You know, there was like there was like nothing in it. Eight hundred square feet felt humongous because of how spacious it was. Mm-hmm. Right now, eight hundred square feet is starting to feel really, really cramped and really hot. You know, when you when you make a fully analog studio. It gets it gets really warm and it gets really uh, cluttered, so it's time to go. There's there's a lot more instruments as well, like the live room filled out. There's a piano, there's a there's an organ, there's a Leslie, there's a Rhodes. It's all set up, you know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. a, there's a house drum set, there's like gobos, there's all you know what I mean? Like stuff that was not there when we got there, and what was just a t- control twenty four and a computer is now thirty two channel API console, and it's two two inch tape machines. And uh, mix down deck and all these all this outboard compression and whatever you know and patch bays and all that stuff. So like I, I would say it's been outgrown for a few years now. So like this this move actually feels much more it feels kind of overdue. But the next step really is you can't upgrade from that situation in a rental, in my opinion, because the amount of if you're really going to go the next step of to go more professional and and like do a real build out. I think you're just kind of lighting money on fire. As we've seen, actually, in the last year, I know, probably five studios in, in California have had to close because their owners sold the building. Like Trilogy closed, Jingletown closed. I mean, which is obviously Jingletown, was they, the, the building owners own the studio. So it's like it's not like they pulled the rug out from anybody. But Grandmaster, right, down in L.A. had to close. Coast closed not long before that. So, like... Those situations are nuts. It's like a nightmare situation if you're going to put a bunch of money in a bunch of like sweat and work into a build out. So it was kind of like, okay, we need to find something that's permanent and that can be that I can live at. Because again, 
you have to keep the overhead low, especially with rent being what it is in the Bay. The idea of having a studio space and having a living space has never been something that's an option for me because it's way too expensive. So yeah, so we started looking around. And that's like, that was a couple of years ago. So when you said, okay, we're, I'm going to move. I'm going to make a big change here. Yeah. What, what criteria did you lay out? Like, what, what was the, did you sit down and go, okay, here's what I need in a studio. Mm-hmm. Here's economically how it has to ha- happen. Sure. If you could put a ballpark estimate on it in terms of time invested mm-hmm. in just imagining it and thinking and planning, what would you say? There's the bare minimum which we knew, right? So it's like, okay, well maybe if we can find a place that's cheap enough, I could just put the studio there and we could live someplace else. My girlfriend and I could live someplace else. So it's like, okay, I need a minimum of a thousand square feet because that was the, that's at least a, about what I'm used to. Maximum of who knows, we'll see what we can, you know, find. But it's like, you know, you want things like ceiling height. You want things like, you know, certain floor space. You need a, you need, you want a warehouse space. You want, you know what I mean? Like there's all these little criteria. So like in terms of like, figuring out the logistics, it was kind of like, let's just start looking around and see what, if something pops out, you know? And actually this space came from, I was, I was introduced to a real estate agent and I gave him a laundry list of like, this is, it it was me and three other people at the time looking for a building together. Uh, One guy was doing screen printing, a different screen printing guy. One guy's doing a record label and I'm doing the studio and living in the, in the building. So we had to find a building that was zoned for live work, a building that was at least 10,000 square feet. Cause at that point we all decided we wanted 3000 each or something like that to be able to do our things at least 15 foot ceiling height gated lot, you know, all that stuff, like all, all these things. And this was the first building he showed me and wow. it's, and it's literally everything we asked for plus a little bit more. And at that time, the, the, one of the three partners dropped out for financial reasons. So it ended up with, we ended up with a 14,000 square foot building split kind of two ways. It ended up being four ways with us and our spouses. But like, but now we've got more space than we know what to do with. And, and then it became like, well, what do we do with this? So I had an idea of doing two studios because the big problem in the current space is that there's only one of me and that, uh, and that I live there and, and the studio space very much overlaps my living space in the current place. So I can't rent it out to anybody else. Nobody else can work there, but me, it's my house. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's animals. My girlfriend lives there. It's not terribly secure. Like every door just opens to the street. So like, you can't just like, you can't leave anybody unattended. You know what I mean? You can't like, you know, cause you can't trust that somebody's going to lock the front door or not like let some animal out or like whatever, you know? So like, mm-hmm. so no, no other engineer has ever worked at my studio. And I'm very used to that. And so it's like, I need another studio with another engineer so that they can do their own thing. And like, and, and I can, if I'm too busy, I hate saying no to people, which is why I work so much. And, and so if, if I'm too busy to handle something, I can pass it off to somebody else and say, you know, I can't record you next week, but so-and-so can. So that's the idea of two studios. So we ended up, I ended up kind of making a rough floor plan of what I would like to see in a dual studio situation. And actually Michael Gore, uh, tech extraordinaire, yeah. uh, lent his expertise in saying like, you know, uh, kind of solidifying the idea of one big live room and two studios that, that kind of branch off of it. And then I called Wes show the magical studio designer. Wes Lachaud makes yet another, <laughs> I got to get Wes on the show because what? he has been, <coughs> Wes is incredible. Me, he has been named on this show so many times. Mm-hmm. So I called Wes show because the original plan here was not to do what we're doing. It was get in here as soon as possible, throw up some DIY studio, just like we did at the other spot, just to get in the door and like not be paying 
double rent and, or whatever, you know, or, or a mortgage here and rent here or whatever, and just get in the building, no permits, no, no, nothing, just do it, you know? And then I called Wes show just for a consultation, by the way, I called him to ask him about flooring only. <laughs> I said, Hey man, can I just pay you to like pick your brain for an hour or whatever? And, uh, to see if there's a, you know, there's a, there's a debate in studio design about whether or not to build on right onto a concrete floor or to, you know, do an ele- elevated deck type situation and all that stuff. And like, mm. what's better for sound and, and whatever. And I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, I've learned, uh, I've learned certain things, you know, we floated the floor at the old studio, but there's all, all sorts of like theories that that's actually more, does more harm than good and all that stuff. It's a, it's a whole mess anyway. But after an hour conversation with Wes, he was hired and weeks later, he was out here. He had flown out, and we did like a twelve-hour consultation, where where he was in the building. He did drawings. We talked over all this stuff, and then like then it was kind of like, all right, we're doing it. And when Wesley Show does plans for you, you can't build them without permits. You can't build them without an architect or a structural engineer and all that stuff. So it became a much much more involved situation. And then it went from four people to get the building to now more people are involved in the studio for kind of from an investor end, kind of from a partner end. So studio B or atomic garden West, as we're calling it, already has a long-term lease to another um, kind of manager and engineer. They'll be here for many, many years. And yeah, so I have a partner for the first time ever, but we're kind of like, uh, we're running two separate businesses, but we're just under the same roof, you know? So the Oakland version is considered West. Well, no, sorry. It's super confusing because right now anyway, because there's two locations, but like there's two rooms, there's two, the two studios. I'm sorry. And you said that before. Yeah. We're just going to, I think we're just calling it Atomic Garden East, which is my spot because it's on the east side of the building and Atomic Garden West, which is on the other side of the, of the live room. Okay. And so rather than A and B, because much to the like (laughs) uh, dismay of Michael Gore and Wesley show and all these other uh, vets that are involved, it's like, no, you want an A room and a B room. You want a high-end room and you want a low-end room so that you can have two different rates, so that you can have different tiers of quality and whatnot. And from the beginning, I was like, nah, we want two A rooms. You know, like we don't, I don't want to, we don't want a B room, especially because the other people that are involved are just as experienced and just as like seasoned as I am. So like, we don't want, there's no hierarchy where everybody's very, uh, professional here. So we have two A rooms. So, um, the fun part came where the second studio had to be outfitted from zero because the engineer who's coming over here to, to be the engineer has been at Fantasy for the last like 15 years. And so he doesn't own any gear because <laughs> he's worked at Fantasy for the last 15 years. So those, so those guys. Who's that? Jesse Nichols. Oh, okay. So Jesse Jesse's Nichols. Jesse's going to be the other part. He is the other part. Well, he's, he's half of the other part. So Jesse's the engineer. He's going to be running the studio. And then a, a, a mutual friend of ours who brought us together, Zach Minjack, who's, a, who's like, he was actually in the first band that I ever recorded at my parents' house that wasn't my own band, has kind of come on kind of on the investor end and uh, more like studio manager for that side. But yeah, so they have uh, a 56 channel SSL that's actually right in the other room, uh, 4,000. That'll be the, the console in, in this side. And they've got a bunch of outboard gear that they've kind of been gathering, like those plate reverbs. One of those plates is, is theirs. One is mine. There'll be three plates on the wall and a BX-20. Yeah, it's been kind of a fun <laughs> last six months. Talk to me about the, the money part of this. Sure. Because... This is a lot of money. It is a lot of money. I mean, 
it's been it's a lot of there's a lot of hands in involved okay so so it went so to even to get this building there's four four of us that that have gone in on this building together okay. and so it's uh it's myself and my girlfriend who might as well be my wife we're on one half and then my partner uh yosuke who does a a record label and his wife are, are the other half. Would that be called, would that be a TIC in? It's an LLC. Uh, meaning a tenancy in common on, in, oh, oh it's right. an LLC. It's, uh, yeah, we, we have an LLC so that we could buy the building as one entity. Oh. And so the four of us are the LLC. Okay. And it's just like a, it really, yeah, it's like, you know, it's not really a business because like all four of us are the tenants here. But yeah, so it took all four of us signing on and throwing in to even get the building. And then now it's on my half of the building. It's myself and my girlfriend doing uh, kind of dealing with handling the finances for the for the ownership and the and the apartment build out. And then myself and Zach and Jesse all throwing in together for the studio side. How did it work out that you got to live here and nobody else did? <laughs> because everybody else actually that's involved owns homes. Oh. And I've only ever lived at my recording studio. And so for me, uh, again, it's an overhead thing. Like the mortgage payment here for me for a studio and a living space is reasonable. It's very reasonable. It's actually not even that much more than what I pay now. So yeah, like it's not an option for me to live someplace else. I don't, okay. there's just not enough money involved, you know? Got it. Wow. Yeah. Okay. You're a year in. I'm a year into building ownership and we're almost done framing. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that nine months of that, year was planning uh in, in west doing all the plans that took three months and then five months of uh permits get waiting for permits from wow. the city and that was with an expedited we paid extra to have it go fast well, and i was i was told that it takes a year now if you don't pay extra to have it go fast what was your experience like with the city of oakland it was pretty reasonable actually i mean like the uh like when all said and done, so my half of the building is 7,000 square feet. The studio is 5,000 square feet. The apartment is 2,000. So it's a huge thing. And, and it's all being either renovated or built from zero up. So understandably, it's a lot of plans to check. And so it took them a little bit. And we had to do a bunch of structural upgrades to the building because residential code is much different than commercial code. And right. so when you're doing a residential conversion that's on the books, because especially has to be, especially now after like ghost ship and things yeah, like that. The, so the ghost ship fire in mm -hmm. Oakland was on the national news. I'm sure, you know, those of you in the audience may have seen it. If you're outside of the United States, probably didn't come on your radar, just Google ghost ship fire and you'll know what we're talking about. But it, it definitely... The, the specter of the ghost ship yeah. really affected a lot of things in they put the a Bay bright, Area. put a bright spotlight on unpermitted spaces and cluttered build-outs and things of that nature. And so the idea that we have a warehouse where people are going to be living, even though it is zoned live work, you still have to get permission and you still have to do a proper conversion of the residential space. Also, the residential space can't be on the ground floor, which was news to me. But it just so happened that there was a mezzanine in the back that was already there. And so it's like, okay, well, I guess that's the apartment. Uh, it was kind of just one of those things, like that'll just be that space, you know? So you'll have sprinklers here? Yeah, only in the living space. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess any new construction, any new residential construction in Oakland needs fire sprinklers, even a house, which has been one of the hardest things to subcontract, actually, because apparently there's some pretty heavy liability with Oakland fire sprinklers. And so a lot of the companies dodge it. So I think we've submitted plans to like 10 different sprinkler 
places and not only one has even returned a bid. So it's been really uh, frustrating. <laughs> wow. Have yeah. you had any panicky moments along the way in, in this new construction? That have, things that have kept you up at night? Not, not really. So I hired on a, 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 an old friend who was a punk musician from Oakland or in, in Oakland, who was, mm-hmm. who was my general contractor and some, and another couple of good friends are his employees. Uh, his name's Will Rutherford. Will took on the job and has been doing an amazing job and like, and lets me sleep at night because he's, he's got so much of it handled. And I should add that it's like, it's not this, it's the studio, it's the apartment. It's this front office we're sitting in, which is like a nonprofit a community outreach program that he helped deal with this. We added a roll-up door. We're doing a bunch of work outside of the building. We, you know, we kind of fixed some of the fencing and put in an automated gate, you know, that sort of thing. Like he's overseeing this entire thing and he's here Monday through Friday, nine to five. And so, and we talk on the phone probably a half an hour a day just with updates about decisions and progress and whatnot. So because of that, I've actually felt pretty good most of the way. I mean, it's taking a little longer than we hoped, but it's getting done super correctly. So it's like you, you, you kind of don't get one without the other. Jack Shirley here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. It's time for a sponsor break here with our friends over at Audio-Technica. And if you recall, I told you that I ordered a pair of Audio-Technica ATH-ANC 23 uh, QuietPoint active noise canceling headphones. Those are the in-ear kind, not the over-the-ear. And they showed up and my 11-year-old was around and was like, oh, ooh, what are those? And I said, oh, I ordered these for the trip. And he's like, oh, I got to get new in-ear headphones because the over-the-ear headphones are really crushing my glasses in and it's they're not very comfortable. And yeah, I know. I just totally caved right then and there. I was like, well, why don't you take these and I'll just get another pair. So anyways... They came in, I had ordered them uh, from Amazon. And so I went ahead and reached out to Audio-Technica and said, uh, hey, you know, um, I gave those headphones to uh, that I ordered over to my 11-year-old. So they said, hey, no problem. We're going to send you a pair of over-the-ear for you uh, and a pair of in-ear to try out, see which ones you like, and uh, let us know what you think. So um, I'm not sure when, they're. I think they're going to be here shortly. The Quiet Point 50s or the uh, the in-ears, the ATH and C 33ISs. Uh, not super expensive, but hey, we don't need to spend a fortune on this. So it's just, it's a plane ride. Doing a little bit of traveling here and want to make it comfortable. So uh, there it is. Audio Technica helping out with that. Let's get back into it with Jack Shirley here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You know, and obviously I don't, want to intrude on your on your finances but did you save up yeah yeah have you been yeah so we're actually kind of going back a little bit to the original atomic garden what was your relationship with money there and i've kind of answered my own question because Mm -hmm. you've obviously been taking care of the money side of it for a while right i mean I've, i've been working a lot for a long time and actually part of this whole thing is to be able to work less when there's two studios and somebody can like pick up some slack I, I'm hoping to not work 70 hours a week once I move to Oakland, which will be a nice change of pace. But when you work that much, you make money. And when your expenses are really low, you have a lot of extra money to, to deal with. So, so I've been able to buy gear. I've been able to like not stress too much. You know, I've been able to save 
to, towards this sort of thing. Also, it's helped a ton that there's other, so many other people involved. So like the new guys in the other studio are, are bringing forward a lot to help out with the build out because a lot of my money is tied up in the building itself. And so that's kind of the partnership that's been struck. Mm-hmm. The East Palo Alto Atomic Garden, it's almost no expense. You know, like I, I sh- I've shared it with many people over the years. Uh, you know, there was uh, my brother and my, and my um, sister-in-law lived there with me for a while. My girlfriends and I have been there. Girlfriends, my girlfriend and I have been there for for almost seven years together. Yeah. So like, uh, there's always been somebody else splitting the space with me, and it's an affordable space, you know. Um, hmm. So it's allowed for a lot of other growth. Basically, um, I was able to get all this analog gear, very little by little. But like, it's you know, it's like like there's an API console. It didn't come in one piece. It came in as many pieces as you could possibly buy one of those things. Like all the 500 series stuff came first. <laughs> Cause this is a newer API. It's a 1608. Yeah. Okay, okay. I had a bunch of their EQs. I really liked them. Then the mainframe came unloaded without any stuff in it. So I put all, I had my EQs in it. Then I got an expander that was unloaded and like, kind of like added on. And then we filled that up. So it's like, that's kind of been the way most of the way is like piecing little things together or like selling, selling gear to kind of like upgrade a little bit, you know, like, uh, you know, I sold a, whatever, I had a bunch of Shadow Hill stuff. I had a bunch of Chandler stuff that I sold that helped pay for the API, you know, like most of the API actually, because Shadow Hill stuff's expensive. Mm-hmm. So, but it's always been that kind of thing, kind of a trade up, you know, throw in a little bit more and you get this next level of, of uh, whatever. So it's like, there was never any huge, like, I'm going to drop a hundred grand on a console this week. You know, like it's, it's like, I'm going to take a few years to like piece together this thing that I want. It's more of that speed, you know, these last 12 years, have you made some mistakes along the way? And have you, have you been good about not going into debt? I don't know if it's mistakes when you only work in your own studio, which I've really only done. You can't really learn gear unless you buy it. And so I, I had to go through a lot of different iterations of, of setups before I kind of decided what I liked. I mean, I wish I had just gone straight to the API console first because it's, it's what I've, it's what I was always in the back of my mind, but it was a little too expensive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, um, but it was always something where it was like, man, that's what I want. And then it was, it was just kind of like kind of crawling there. But on the way, I learned all sorts of stuff about my own preferences. And then I, and I also started working outside at other studios occasionally. And then I learned even more about my own preferences. You know, like, I don't really like Neve that much <laughs> uh, for whatever it's worth. Or like, or like, I like it, but like for maybe a certain style, which is not the style that I usually work on. I got to work on a vintage Neve console and I owned a handful of preamps that are like Neve style preamps, that sort of thing, you know. Um, but that's peace of mind because usually a lot of uh, like I was grappling forever with like, I need a setup that's kind of half and half, you know, like I want to be able to have like half API and half Neve and like be able to go between. And then like I had that. And when I did, I realized that I didn't really like the, the Neve stuff that much. Like every, every, like I was always trying to make it sound like it was the API stuff or like we recorded, we recorded, um, uh, my old band recorded a seven inch at Prairie Sun in there in like the Tom Waits room, which was like a awesome, you know, experience. And on this 80 series Neve and it was like, incredible, you know, but when I brought it home to mix it, all I wanted to do was make it sound like it was done on API. Like I, all the moves I was making was like trying to get it back to the space that I knew. Interesting. Um, or like when I worked at 25th street on their API, it was super comfortable and everything was just how I wanted it. And, and it was kind of just confirmation that like, all right, this is it, you know, like, or the other thing too, that was a big push was like, you know, when you buy outboard gear in pieces, you got, you end up with a pair of this and a pair of that and 
whatever, you know, two Chandler channels and two API channels and, 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 and so on and so forth. And, and you end up getting caught up in the like, well, these sound good on kick drum and this one sounds really good for a guitar and whatever. And you end up spending, in my opinion, way too much time kind of nitpicking and wine tasting and cork sniffing and stuff. And, and I was like, you know what? I want every single channel of my recording chain to just be the exact same thing. I don't want to think about this again. Like I want, I want to know that I like the way it sounds and it sounds great. And I don't want to decide which EQ is going to go on the whatever, or which preamp is going to be with, with this or that. So I got, like, it was a no brainer. Like everything just needs to be the same. And it's great. It's, I've made the, I've made by far the best recordings that I've ever made on that, on that console. Why the decision to go more in the direction of analog? I, I mean... Does the workflow work? Do you enjoy that better? I, I very much enjoy the workflow. I like At this point, uh, I've phased the computer out almost completely for tracking. I, I, almost, I almost never track, even with the computer on. That was part of the push of adding the expander to the console so that I could monitor on the console. Because I was before I didn't have enough channels, I was monitoring in Pro Tools. So we'd track a tape. And I'd go through the console, but I didn't have anything to play it back on. So we'd monitor through Pro Tools, and, and like that would be my monitor mixer. But I phased that out because that was, it was like an extra step, you know? But yeah, I don't know. I started just getting, I started with a bunch of Chameleon Labs preamps, mm -hmm. like the mic pre, it's, it's their Neve mic pre EQ. I bought like 12 channels because they were really cheap when they first came out. And that was my first kind of like jump into analog world. And I really liked it. I really liked the hands-on uh, experience. I thought the EQ sounded better than what I was used to in the box. And that, I mean, it just spiraled out of control from there. I mean, when I bought a two-inch tape machine, when I went to pick it up, I'd literally never even seen one in person before because I've only ever worked <laughs> in my own studio. And we got it and I brought it home. And like, that was like eight years ago or something like that now. And, and, and it's been it's been like the main, it's been my main recorder ever since then. You know, what's really interesting about you is that, you know, when one starts out in the world of recording, there's kind of almost like a, a certain path some people kind of tell you well why don't you go to a recording school and right. do this and you know work your way up the chain you kind of just dove straight in mm -hmm. trial by fire one little piece after another you built up you figured stuff out on the job training mm -hmm. and really grew you grew as an engineer you grew financially as a businessman mm -hmm. it's i think that that is such a better way to go in for some, now for some people. Well, I mean, there's a there's a pretty hefty curve <laughs> when you're doing it like that, yeah. where you where you fuck up a lot of records. And like in my case, they were usually my own band's records mm -hmm. because I, I I usually played it safe. When you don't know what you're doing, you got to kind of play it safe with other people's music because you don't want to fuck it up. And part of my whole thing uh, was don't do anything to it, just like capture it, you know. And when you're just doing that. And you're doing it as like simply as possible. It, it is kind of hard to mess it up because you you know you just you you uh, if you have an ear for tone and you can capture it simply with few microphones where like phase isn't that big of an issue because there's not enough stuff in play. Uh, right. You know, like it's hard to mess it up. But then I started getting kind of daring, and then my own band would come to, like to record. It's like, oh, we're gonna try all kinds of stuff, and those recordings sound fucking terrible. But then you learn a lesson, you know. And by the last record. It actually went pretty well, uh, you know, like nine years into that band, the last LP turned out great, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it may not work for everybody right. in your particular case, it's worked to your advantage and it's, it's yeah. really interesting. So I have to ask about perseverance mm -hmm. and what, what makes you continue to get up every morning and go, I'm going to continue to record. I'm going to continue down this path and I'm going to not only continue, but grow. Mm. That's, an, that's a super easy answer. I tell people all the time because it's always kind of in my mind is that 
it's the kind of craft that you're never ever going to get good enough at to be satisfied with yourself. And uh, but you but your incremental quality build is mm -hmm. just enough to keep you motivated. It's almost like you're it's the carrot on the stick. You know what I mean? Uh, where where like you're never going to be good enough for your own good because the more you learn, the more you learn how. <laughs> you're not doing, uh, all, you know, like you're, you're, you could be doing more or whatever. Right. Um, and so that's it. I mean, like, it's always interesting. I always learn something every day. There's something else that happens that you kind of just bank as like, uh, Oh, cool. That's like, I, now I know what to do when that comes up. I, you know, I went to school for art and like the parallels in like an art education for, for illustration or whatever, like how you just deal with, a craft are, are, I mean, they couldn't be more alike, you know, like just knowing when to stop working when you're fatigued, like knowing how to like take a step back and kind of like see what you're actually, you know, recognize if you are messing up or whatever, like, you know, like, uh, so actually it was, th that education was super valuable, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just like, I don't know. It's super, it's really fun. I, I, I like, I like the gear. I like the people. I like the music. I'm super fortunate to have like done the kind of work that attracts the kind of people that like keep the cycle going where like, I'm, I mean, last year I worked on a couple records that I really didn't like and I didn't like the music and the people were nice enough, but like, it was kind of like, it was a little bit on the painful side, mm -hmm. but it reminded me, whoa, it's been so long since this has happened that like, it just made me even more grateful. You know what I mean? Like, like the, usually the people that are coming in the door we're on the same page musically. We're on the same page in terms of the process. We're, there's a lot of like mutual respect. And it's, it's, I don't know, it's fantastic. I mean, I, I love being there to like help people do their thing, especially because I've been in the position, you walk into a recording studio, it's super intimidating. It's very unwelcoming. Mm -hmm. the, pe the, the people, it's almost like going into a guitar store when you like don't know anything about guitar. And like, and you ask a question that gets you laughed at by the staff, you know, like, all it takes is one of those experiences to teach you that like, you don't want to be that asshole, you know? Uh, yeah. and that, and that you and you want to recognize when someone doesn't know what they're doing and you want to like kind of almost immediately just like drop down to like start explaining in the most simple terms, you know what I mean? Like helping people understand, not mocking them for not knowing every like nuance of, of this craft that like you're a professional at, you know, there's something about having those experiences in, in like, um, and knowing when to be a producer and when to be an engineer, that sort of thing. I really like that dynamic. I don't know. It's just, it's great. I don't and know, it's, and it's knowing just... not when to be an asshole. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One aspect of, of recording is patience. And I admittedly have not had patience in, in a couple situations over the, over the last, you know, 20 or so years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I look back on those situations like, well, that was a rookie mistake. Right. So, yeah. We all have our moments, for sure. We definitely do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of motivation and, and you know, guidance and not directly derived from recording, where does that come from for you? Is there any, you know, people in how to, how to run your life or... From when I was like 13, 14, mm -hmm. my dad instilled like a really strong work ethic in me. When I was 14, I got a job in an auto shop as like a cleanup kid, you know? Like, and I've worked... Ever since then, I'm 36 now. I've had a job the whole time, you know? 
it's crazy. So my dad passed away uh, three months ago. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, thank you. Um, but what's crazy, and I've talked about this recently because we actually, the memorial was just a, like a week, two weeks ago, is that he kind of created a monster in both of his children, really, because he was this very like hard-assed, like, you know, disciplined military type dude, you know? But yeah, instilled a really strong work ethic, a respect for money and sec- security or whatever you'd call it. But he did it in a couple of kids that were like punk rock, like authoritarian haters. <laughs> and so, uh, so like, as a perfect example, they were like, you're 14, you've got a job now, you're going to save up some money, you're going to save up $1,500. This is like a, a test almost. You save up $1,500, we're going to match it, and then you can buy a car when you turn 16. That was their whole, it was like a, it was a lesson to teach you how to save money and give you incentive, right? And so makes sense. Like I've heard of other people doing it. So I got a job, I saved up $1,500 and I bought a Les Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wow. And they were pissed because that was not supposed to be the lesson, you know, like you need a car, you're 16, you know? And I bought a Les Paul and that was 20 years ago. And that Les Paul has been around the world like five times. And so, I don't know. Uh, so, like I said, I mean, he, he kind of created a monster, but, like, for, for himself, anyway. But, but, yeah, I guess that's where it was from. In terms of the day-to-day now, I mean, I don't know. Like, like so much of my experience is, is just kind of, like, in my little bubble, you know, because I only really work by myself and, and at my own place. There's a total, um, I don't even know what you'd, how you, what you'd call it, but, like, a... Is it a survival yeah, type? Yeah. Well, it's, it's a combination. It's survival it is an obligation to the to the clientele. Mm-hmm. Like so, so much, so many of the people that I work with are close friends of mine. And so, when when a when a good friend of mine calls me up and they're in a band that I love, and they say, "Hey, we need to record in like a, a few weeks for something or whatever," can you do it? I look at a free day on my calendar that might be my only day off for two weeks, and I say, "Yeah, I got a free day right there." And so that's my, that's my instinct is to just be like, yeah, I got a free day right there. That's not the best thing to do if you're trying to have like a relationship or a personal life, but like, it's my instinct and it is a survival thing. Like when you're self-employed, you have no idea when it's going to dry up. It's been a problem to be honest. Working 70 hours a week is not a sustainable thing. You can't do it for that long before you start getting burnt out on it. And I'm actually starting to get kind of burnt out on it, mostly because of the conditions that I'm working in. It's so fucking hot in my studio. (laughs) Like I have this little like R2D2 AC unit Mm -hmm. and that thing's on 12 hours a day. It's loud and it barely keeps the room at like 85 degrees. Is that one of those ones where you have to empty the water out of the little bucket? Thankfully it's one that has an exhaust and and I just exhaust it out into the warehouse. Like, you know, like, (laughs) because it's a, I'm I'm freestanding inside of a warehouse. So like there's a little space between the wall where it goes up to the ceiling, to the proper roof. And so anyway, so it's like, it's getting harder and harder to work where I work. And it's not helping my like hours <laughs> that I work, but uh, especially with this summer has been so hot. But things like that are like it's making it it's making it tough. But like, but I have this little light at the end of the tunnel, in the space behind me. There's three HVAC systems that run the studio because Studio One and the live room and Studio Two they all have different <laughs> needs and whatnot. So like, I'm so, I, I'm ready. I'm so ready. To, to, to You're be ready in, to make the, to, the jump, yeah, man, to be in an air conditioned studio with enough room for all the people. That brings up a great point. Um, yeah. What about your, your work life balance with your girlfriend? Yeah. Are you trying to change that kind of 
constant 70 hour a week type mentality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I will say she is a saint because she's put up with a lot. I mean, she lives, she, she lives in a recording studio for, I mean, for lack of a better description, like if there's a band recording in your home, you're, you're one, you're two layers of drywall because we didn't build the studio that well, uh, from a, from a live band playing in the same room together, you know, it's loud. And like when somebody comes to go to the bathroom, they're walking through your kitchen and they're walking through your living space to get, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. and yeah, a lot of these people are, are mutual friends, so it's not that big of a deal, but like, but it gets old. It's been, it's been seven years of that, you know? (laughs) So in new life, which we affectionately refer to this building, the apartment is upstairs. It's soundproofed. It's completely separated from the rest of the warehouse and the the studio. There's a separate entrance. There's a separate everything, separate kitchen, separate bathrooms, you know, it's all going to change for sure. And and I don't have to work 70 hours a week because I can like, I can hand off work, you know, if, 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 even if it is a friend and they're like, we need to get in at this time. And like, I don't, you know, and I've already worked two weeks straight. I can say, oh, Jesse can probably take you those days. And that's been the goal from the, for, for years now. It, it, it's been as busy as I've been for at least six years. Well, we should do, um, we should do a walkthrough now. Sure. And, uh, and take a look around. And then maybe when it's done, yeah. we can come back and do another walkthrough yeah, yeah. to see the finished product. It'll be a much more, uh, it'll be a much more uh, satisfying walkthrough the second time. <laughs> um, yeah, like there's been a lot of um, discussion about cosmetics as well, like that sort of thing. I'm coming from like a super, super DIY studio that like that completely takes away that intimidating studio aspect. Mm-hmm. It's so like casual that there's no museum factor where you feel like you're walking into somewhere where you can't even like set something down, you know, or like, or bump into something, you know? And I've been told that a lot is that it's super comfortable and people have a, they, they really like let their guard down when they're there. And we're trying to retain that. And Wes's designs historically are really nice looking and uh, to the point where it's kind of prohibitive, you know? So there's been a lot of discussion of that. I, I'll, I'll be very curious to see it. And uh, like tiny telephone in San Francisco mm-hmm is not a museum. Right. And people, I think that's one of the draws of it. Absolutely. Because you can let your guard down and you can set your drink down and relax. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have that stifling lab. And that's exactly, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Like there's a lot of softening and like, and like clouds and all kinds of weird vertical caverns and stuff like that in the design for Mm -hmm. acoustic reasons. And oftentimes they're pretty, they're like highlighted with like diffused lighting and all kinds of stuff like that. And like, there's been a lot of discussion of like, from the eye line up is going to be black. Everything's black. All you'll see when you look up is lights coming down at you. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want, I don't want there to, to be this big cavernous ceiling that you look up and see. Like, I want it to feel intimate still. And like, it's hard to downplay a 3,500 square foot studio to make it feel small or you know what I mean? So we'll see. I don't know. We'll get there. <laughs> well, I wish you luck. And, and I appreciate you being uh, on the podcast and taking the time to talk with me. It's great to see you again and, and great to see that you've really uh, grown into this position. This is great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I, uh, I, I've listened to the podcast. I, I very much enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an honor to be included. Well, thanks, Jack. Jack Shirley here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Wow. Really, really excited to see that studio come together and see uh, how Jack, uh, you know, uh, where he takes it next and how it how it's done. So, 
Yeah, it's going to be exciting. Anyways, we're running out of time here, so let's uh, let's make sure and thank everybody. Let's thank Mr. Uh, Cliff Truesdell, as we always do, and Mr. Chuck Smith and Mr. Cole Williams. The uh, sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Audio-Technica, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Lawton Audio. And uh, thanks again for listening. I certainly appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.